Hello and welcome to season one of the Medici podcast, the early Medici. Five episodes in, and we finally meet the Medici. Well, kind of. It's an early and poorly documented period of the family's history, but I still think this is a good point to end our prelude and start weaving together the story of Florence and the story of the family Medici. One little mea culpa, though. Besides probably mangling the pronunciation of Gonfalonieri, I was vague about what it actually was when I described the government of Florence last time. Gonfalonieri does literally mean standard bearer, but what I didn't say was that he was basically the chairman of the Signora. How much power he had generally changed over time, but it's not wrong to say he was basically the head of the state of Florence, albeit one who only held office for a term of two months. Still, though, the Gonfalonieri didn't have the same ceremonial significance of a modern president or prime minister or even the doges of Venice at the time. There really aren't any clean parallels here, but I want to at least give you an idea of what all this means as we move forward. So with that, let's start our narrative with a bit of a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a courageous knight named Averardo. He fought well for Emperor Charlemagne, freeing Italy from the tyranny of the Lombards. While traveling through the Mugello Valley, he caught word of a giant who was terrorizing the people who lived there. Averardo challenged this Goliath to one-on-one -on -one combat. The giant tried to brain Averardo with his mace, but he lifted his golden shield at a pivotal moment holding the shield so strongly that the giant's mace shattered against it. However, the mace left the shield dented with the iron balls off the mace. Even with his shield damaged, however, Averado was able to overpower and kill the cruel giant. Impressed by his feats, Charlemagne himself granted Averado the right to use the dented shield, iron balls and all, as his family insignia. With that, Averato graciously accepted the invitation of the people he liberated to settle in the valley. There, his descendants became known as the Medici family. Is this story fact or fiction? If you thought this one was phony, you're right. It never happened. I mean, to be fair, the Medici actually did come from a village named Cafajolo in the Mugello Valley. The Mugello Valley is situated in the Apennines, not far north of Florence. We can't say much more than that, even how they got the name Medici. Since Medici seems to come from the Latin word for doctor, medicus, 
It is possible that at least one member of the family, if not a line of descendants, worked in medicine. Surnames were relatively rare outside the nobility by around the 13th century, when the Medici first appear, and commoner surnames were often based on a family profession. Still, we can't know that for certain. In fact, one historian of the Medici, James Clue, suggested that the Medici just got their name because they signed up with the Guild of Physicians when they first arrived in Florence. And signing up with guilds that were not strictly related to your actual profession was something that happened in medieval Florence. I haven't seen another source second that, though, so take that theory with a grain of salt. What historians do tend to agree on is that the idea that the Medici's family crest, which shows red balls over a field of gold or yellow, was probably never meant to refer to this hypothetical heritage as doctors. The red balls could not represent pills because round pills weren't a common feature of medicine at the time the Medici's insignia first appears. Nor are they the fragments of a giant's mace. Instead, the balls probably actually represent coins, with the entire insignia resembling the signs medieval money changers used to hang over their stalls or outside their shops. We also have no idea why and exactly when the Medici migrated from their humble mountain village to the bustling metropolis of Florence down south. We just know that they kept ties with Caffagiolo, and a Medici villa in the valley still exists as a historic landmark. Likely enough, the Medici, like thousands of others, were drawn by the economic boom in the cities of northern Italy during the 12th and 13th centuries. I'll talk more about this and capitalism in a future episode, but Florence's trading and banking networks had become so pervasive and rich that the city's standard coin, the florin, became the standard international currency for Europe. So it's no surprise that a family like the Medici would be drawn to Florence for economic opportunities. Florence was in the middle of a massive population boom as well. By 1250, the city's population reached 65,000, making it the fifth largest city in Europe, in no small part because of immigrants like the Medici. Naturally, this meant the Florence weren't reluctant to throw their weight around. In 1300, during the celebration of the Papal Jubilee, Pope Boniface VIII was surprised and maybe a little disconcerted to find himself greeting 12 Florentines, who appeared acting as diplomats for the sovereigns of Bohemia, Russia, the Golden Horde, Naples, Sicily, Muscovy, England, France, Verona, and Pisa. In response, Boniface referred to the Florentines, who were by then everywhere in Europe as bankers and merchants, as the fifth element, as present as air, fire, and water. The first time a Medici appears in the Florentine records is in 1216, when a Bonajunta de Medici is listed as a member of a city council. 
All we can say about him is that he was the son of Jean Buono de Medici, and that he owned houses in the city's commercial heart, the Mercato Vecchio, or the Old Market. There's also a document that reveals that Bonajunta and his brother Chiarissimo must have been bankers since they lent money to a monastery. Other documents suggest Bunajunta's sons, Galgano and Ugo, took up their father's line of work. And, well, that's it for most of the 13th century. Then suddenly, Bonajunta's great-grandson, Ardingo de Medici, appears as a prior who is part of the pivotal signora that passed the ordinances of justice. In 1296, he would become gonfalonieri for the first time and was married to Gemma de Bardi, a noblewoman from one of Florence's top aristocratic families. These were indeed good times for both Florence and the Medici, but they weren't exactly quiet times, what with that new ongoing feud between the white and the black factions that replaced the old Guelph and Ghibelline War. While the Ghibelline and Guelph conflict started with a prank, this one was sparked by real estate. A family of wealthy merchants, the Cherki, purchased a mansion in a posh, traditionally aristocratic neighborhood, which made them the neighbors of two of Florence's oldest noble families, the Donati and the Pazzi. These two families also had much smaller checking accounts than the Cherki. Dino Campani, who was not only alive for these events, but was a member of the white faction, explains what happened next, starting in the year 1300. The Cherki rising to eminence, they had built and added to the palace and kept great state. The Donati began to feel a deep hatred towards them. This increased greatly because Corso Donati, an ambitious knight whose wife had died, became betrothed to another, the daughter of the late Acharito de Gaville, an heiress. But when her kinsmen would not consent to this because they were expecting the inheritance, the maiden's mother, seeing he was a very handsome man, concluded the match, contrary to the wishes of the rest. The Cherokee, kinsmen of Neri of Gaville, became angry and tried to prevent Corso from getting the inheritance. However, he took it by force, and hence arose much mischief and danger to the city and to individuals. Some men from the Cherokee family were allegedly poisoned by Corso, although the courts dismissed the charges because there was no proof. The Cherokee then went straight to the court of public opinion and riled up the artisan and laborer classes, the Papalani. The Donati were already on the Papalani's bad side because the Donati played a key role in the plot to get our champion of democracy, Gianno della Bella, exiled and blacklisted by the Pope himself. So they didn't require that much persuasion. However, the descendants of the old Ghibelline nobles also took up the cause of the Cherokee, largely out of old generational rivalries with the Guelph families who slighted them decades ago when the war between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines was still old. Out of this motley crew came what would become known as the White Faction, 
Meanwhile, even though the Donati had been champions of the campaign to stop the ordinances of justice and prevent the guilds from taking the reins of the Republic, the upper middle class still tended to side with the Donati and their noble allies. Why? Well, I don't think you need to be a Marxist to guess it was because they wanted to side with anyone the majority of the Papalani were against. And this would form the nucleus of what would become known as the Black Faction. Look, I know, just don't try to think about late medieval Italian factional politics too much, or you'll end up like an H.P. Lovecraft protagonist. What's important is that the middle classes of Florence proved to be just as ready to pursue old-fashioned bloody vendettas as the nobility. Starting with a fight that broke out at the funeral of a noblewoman, the whites and the blacks engaged in street fights, riots, and assassinations. Dino explicitly mentions the Medici among the middle class and noble families that participated in the violence or were victims of it with one unnamed member of the family getting murdered in the chaos. Dino claims that the violence reached a point where men were being tied up and tortured in public and in broad daylight. In another incident, a few blacks lit a fire to destroy a white barricade, but the fire grew out of anyone's control and ended up destroying the city center and over 2,000 buildings. No wonder Dino went on a tangent in his history to write this bitterly satirical speech, which, of course, he attributes to the blacks. Arise, O wicked citizens, full of discord. Take sword and fire in your hands, and spread abroad your evil doings. Disclose your iniquitous desires and abominable purposes. Delay no longer. Go, and lay waste the beauties of your city. Shed your brother's blood. Strip yourselves of faith and love. Deny one another help and service. Delay not, ye miserable men, for more is destroyed in one day's war than is gained through long years of peace. And small is that spark which brings a great kingdom to destruction. It's still a little unclear exactly whose side the Medici were on, even though Dino describes them as being Papalani themselves. However, he also claims that they attacked a well-liked member of the Papalani, Orlanducho Orlandi, and left him for dead. Likely enough, the family was split, like other sprawling clans were, and the loyalties of even individual members of the family shifted. In any case, the fighting would naturally prove to have tremendous political consequences beyond a little property damage and human death here and there. Boniface VIII sent a papal envoy to Florence to try to negotiate a peace between the blacks and the whites. Dino claims, though, that the real purpose of the mission was to dot the I's on a secret agreement between the Pope and the leaders of the blacks that would allow the papal states to annex Florence in exchange for military support against the whites. Given that Dino himself was a white, though, it's safe to doubt this particular claim of his. That said, though, there is reason to believe that the Pope's sympathies were with the Blacks, who had managed to tie up their own cause with that of papal supremacy over all of Italy. Whatever the envoy's purposes, it ended in catastrophe. A Papalani mob, armed with crossbars, 
stormed the papal envoy's quarters and threatened him. The Pope reacted by putting all of Florence under a papal interdict. The government, which at the time included Dino Campani himself and the poet Dante, tried to appease the Pope by banishing the most radical members of both factions. However, Boniface VIII had already decided to take matters into his own hands and resolve the crisis, ostensibly for the sake of peace, but really for the blacks. As the popes had learned, if you had a problem with some other Italian state, just find yourself a French prince, aim him at the problem, and let him go. This time, the pope appealed to Charles de Valois, the second son of King Philip III of France, promising to support him in becoming Holy Roman Emperor if he just helped him bring Florence to heel. In 1302, Charles de Valois marched with an army to Florence. Outmatched, the Signora had the city gates open to Charles, following his envoy's promise that he was just there to negotiate a lasting peace between the whites and the blacks. Unfortunately, he was lying. He released all blacks who had been imprisoned. Also, he banished 600 citizens who were associated with the white party and installed a new government that was stacked with members of the black faction. One of the whites who was exiled just happened to be Dante. He just so happened to be in Siena at the time. The government condemned him in absentia to be burned alive if he set foot past the city limits ever again. And in fact, Dante would never see his beloved Florence for the rest of his life. Many of the whites established a kind of government in exile in the nearby town of Pastoia. By 1306, Ardingo de Medici was serving as prior again. Still though, we're not exactly sure if he identified with either faction or may have been one of those who was trying to negotiate a lasting settlement. Still, it was during his time as a prior that the greatest atrocity of the war between the blacks and the whites took place. Pastoria was put under siege, and to try to prevent a famine, the women, children, old men, and the disabled of the town were sent out. But rather than showing them mercy or taking them captive as would have been customary, the Florentines either slaughtered them or forced them back into the town to suffer starvation. Soon, the town had no choice but to surrender on the blacks' own terms. I just have to quote Dino Campani again. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities which were overwhelmed in a moment and their inhabitants slain had a far better fate than the Pistorians dying in such bitter sufferings. How did the wrath of God assault them? How many? And what sins could they have committed to merit such sudden judgment? By this time, there was a new pope, Clement V, who you might know from such hits as relocating the papacy to the city of Avignon outside Italy, and helping arrange the executions of the Knights Templar on trumped-up charges. Somewhat less partisan over this whole white and black thing than his predecessor had been, Clement V demanded that Florence end the ongoing conflict. When the Florentines refused, the Pope declared war on Florence in 1307, 
Ardingo himself helped rally the resistance, which managed to repel papal forces from Tuscany. In fact, Ardingo seems to have been a successful and beloved politician. A vivid description of him comes from a scholar writing much later in the 16th century, although there may be a ring of truth to it. It was alleged that his extraordinary mode of life, the great number of bullies and ruffians that he kept around him, his house ever open to all sorts of people, his immoderate munificence, his friendships with many Italian princes, his presence, his style of speech, his stately bearing, and indeed his every gesture, word, and movement savored of sovereignty. Whatever Ardingo's successes, however, the Republic remained on a knife's edge. After long decades of the Holy Roman Empire being split between multiple candidates and ruled by a weak placeholder emperor, a new emperor was elected, Henry VII, who decided to once again try to subdue northern Italy. How this new conflict between northern Italy and the Holy Roman Empire might have shaken out, we will never know. Because while in Italy, Henry VII got distracted by a war between the Papal States and the Kingdom of Naples, and then he died from a sudden illness in 1313. Unfortunately, there is another threat to Florence much closer to home. By this point, Florence's major rival when it came to trade and banking was the fellow Tuscan city of Pisa. Pisa was ruled by its own signore, Castruccio Castracani, who was an exceptionally talented general. The signora of Florence was so intimidated by Castracani and the Pisans, in fact, that they actually voted to invite King Robert of Naples, the grandson of Charles of Anjou, to become signore of the city for five years in exchange for military aid. But even with a king in their corner, Florence lost a pivotal battle to Pisa in 1316, and then again about a decade later. Obviously, at least Florence was defying the trend of its neighbors by not making one of its own citizens signore. Still, given that European royals tend to be a bit of an ambitious lot, it was a risky strategy for the long-term health of the Republic. Still, though, the Signora later offered the office of Signore to King Robert's son and heir, Charles of Calabria, for a ten-year term. Not only was Charles granted the role of commander-in-chief of Florence's army, but also the right to appoint the Podesta, and the priors of the Signora. Yet again, though, the Grim Reaper stepped in to lend the Republic a hand. The city's demonic archenemy, Castruccio, died in 1328, and his regime almost immediately collapsed. A couple of months later, Charles of Calabria also died. However, Florence was not quite done with offering power to foreigners, and next time, a couple of timely deaths won't save the Republic from tyranny. Join us next time when the Medici will once again step onto the stage of history to save Florence from the regime of a man I already like to call King Walt. Be sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, and more. There you'll also find ways to support me and the podcast through Patreon, 
or less one-time payments. Remember, I'm yet another underemployed and underpaid millennial, so it counts as charity. Also, it helps me keep the podcast going through buying books for research and upgrading my equipment. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.